Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Uh, well, it's been kind of a crummy week. Kind of a rough week. Yeah. I'm sure for a lot of people. For not, a lot of people. Not, uh, we we aren't high on that list. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to say that we were, but. I mean, mega bummer, but there are many people so, for whom it has been a worse week. Absolutely. Um, it's, been, it's been a bad week for the U.S., I would All say. of a sudden, racial superiority is like a hot topic again, which I thought we were yeah. coming close to a consensus on that, not 100%, but I thought we were a little bit closer than this. I think, I think a lot of people assumed that, and uh, what's interesting about that, Justin, and I think what's worth talking about is that you say all of a sudden, and I think it feels that way for a lot of people who just kind of accept that uh, outdated ideas of racial superiority are, uh, nobody buys that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're past that. Haven't we moved on? And and the truth is, America has a really sketchy history when it comes to eugenics and the pseudoscience behind the superiority of various races and that's what we not a new concept and that's and when we wanted to try to address uh the events of the past week that was the best way we could think of to talk about it because there's a lot of pseudoscience that gets thrown around connected to this issue and it goes beyond race um it's it's not just race obviously eugenics touches on but we thought well if you're going to try to spout a bunch of nonsense science at least sawbones can try to smack it down there so yeah uh, there, we we are not we are not historians by trade there's a lot that you could learn from about this kind of american america's secret eugenics history it's not a secret there are books about this uh, other podcasts have talked about it uh, stuff you missed in history class mm-hmm. um talked about it but for some reason everybody conveniently forgets it and doesn't want to talk about it in school um yeah, and we but thought it, it might be useful true. as a, something of a cautionary tale exactly. uh, of sorts uh, about where this kind of thinking has led us in the past. And uh, anyway. And medicine was involved, doctors were involved, so I feel like it's fair game for us. Usually, this is a, we do a fun intro here where it's like, I'm dumb about something, but I was somewhat cautious about being dumb about eugenics. That seems <laughs> somewhat uh, ambiguous on the funny scale. So uh, we're just here and we're going to talk about it. So let's go. 
Well, thank you to uh, a lot of people who have suggested this topic before. Kathleen, Esther, Alex, Jennabelle, David, Sarah, Nicholas, and Karen. Uh, thank you. Let's, let's talk about it. So the root for the word eugenics comes from the Greek for good and origin or good birth, literally. Now, the, uh, the term eugenics doesn't, as we, as we think of it, doesn't date back to the ancient Greeks. It came much later. And in fact, ancient civilizations didn't have a lot to say on this kind of topic because we didn't understand genetics very well. Right. So what would they have said? Now, it is kind of weird. You do see this argument from Plato on sort of a uh, selective breeding. I mean, because... Tag, you, you know, they've always seemed so nice. What with the different colors, uh, all the fun models and shapes. Uh, <laughs> not uh, sparkly that. Sparkly. You wouldn't not that think one. That, that's a bold stance right not there. That, not that one with the T. Plato. Plato. Got Plato. it. Plato. Those are the jokes so, this time, folks. That's <laughs> about as good as we gonna get. All right. Uh, so, the I mean, and if you think about it, like the, it, well, as soon as the concepts of like animal husbandry and that kind of thing were understood, I could see where people might begin to put two and two together. Anyway, Plato talked about this this kind of there was this concept of like a hierarchy of humanity, mm-hmm. and again, this this doesn't really have anything to do with genes and heredity as we understand it today but the thought was that there were like gold souls and silver souls and bronze souls okay listen i've played a lot <laughs> i've played the dark soul series i know what's going on here you exchange them for leveling up and uh, no you would try to mate them to make more gold ones okay and these this has nothing to do with like a skin color <laughs> or any sort of physical feature it was more just like like social Kind of like a cast sort of, not cast, but similar system. So it's exactly like Final Fantasy VII where you try to breed chocobos and you're trying to create the best chocobo possible. I had a friend try to explain this to me once in drama class in high school and I've never gotten over that description because I still don't understand what he was trying to tell me. You need to get the gold chocobo to be able to get Knights of the Round, which yeah, is the best Yeah, he told me this. It still sounds just as crazy. So Plato said, you know, we should what we should really try to do is get people in this higher social strata that he was calling gold souls to breed with each other and make more of that and that would be great except he did say you know if the state tried to force people to marry certain other people nobody would nobody would like that like we can't do that Mm -hmm. so his idea that he proposed was this sort of fixed lottery okay where everybody would sign up would have to sign up for the lottery and you would get randomly matched to someone who you had to marry do it with whatever okay but it was a fixed lottery so the the state secretly would pair up quote unquote gold souls okay so that they had to get married. now none of this ever happened it's a lot more shirley jackson than i expected <laughs> no, none of this ever happened but this okay. was this was one of the first kind of proposals for this kind of thing um and th- then there were other ancient civilizations who didn't really get into that they, it was it was much cruder they just thought well we don't want to perpetuate you know, what they would think of as bad bloodlines. And so you would take care of that after birth. Mm. But we won't get into that. Charming. The modern eugenics movement really comes from the 1800s. That's really where we see what we what we thought think of now as eugenics and what we experienced in the early 1900s uh, from Francis Galton. Galton, who was, by the way, a cousin of Darwin mm-hmm. and really was impressed with Darwin's theories and wanted to get a little slice of yeah. the limelight himself <laughs> uh 
he, he studied medicine and he studied math and he traveled a lot and he really liked to read obituaries. Uh, he would comb through obituaries and look for patterns in families. So like the grandpa died and he was a rich businessman and then the, the dad died and he was a rich businessman and their son died and it's rich businessman. Ah, so they, this something is like a fast forwarded version of a Sawbones episode. <laughs> Some something has been the passed down. Was born, he made something up, and then he died. And <laughs> so he came. So he came to this theory that traits were passed down through generations. And when I say traits, I, later this would come to mean genes. But at this point in history, we're not talking about genes. We're talking about broad definitions of traits. So things like poverty or wealth, okay, criminality or lawfulness. Uh, promiscuity or fidelity the application of those genetic traits is what we're talking about yes okay yeah no well i mean the, he he just assumed all these things were genetic okay yeah if somebody was a criminal it was because it was something something in inherent to them got it and you could predict it by tracing their family tree uh so he interviewed a lot of families and developed a lot of kind of family histories and pedigrees and said uh, basically after all of this research we could ensure a higher quality of humanity if we just had people who have all these good traits breed and not the people with the bad traits and he came up with these two ideas of positive eugenics and negative eugenics positive meaning we would try to find a way to enforce or to encourage incentivize. or incentivize yeah. breeding between these good traits, people who have these good traits, and then people, negative eugenics, meaning people who don't have these good traits, we would somehow find a way to remove from the gene pool. Now, he was not necessarily advocating for murdering people, but he was advocating that these people should not continue their bloodline whatever that may mean mm -hmm. um, his ideas were studied in a couple of schools in the UK and a lot of people talked about it and thought about it and there were a lot of doctors and biology experts from the time but they really didn't take hold as strongly in the UK at this point in history there were a lot of people who thought it was interesting uh, but Galton really treated it as this is a this is a brand new science i am just now beginning to understand it and i want to go about it in a very rigorous fashion and so it didn't it didn't catch the country by storm so to speak um i think it was only taught in a couple of schools uh so it really it really didn't take hold until it crossed the atlantic so charles davenport a biologist from connecticut in the late 18 and early 1900s was hugely inspired by Galton's ideas and decided this is this is not just a new science that should be explored. This is the science that will define the rest of humanity. And we need to we really need to put our feet on the gas pedal and make this happen and get mm -hmm. this message out. So he opened the eugenics record office and Cold Springs Harbor Laboratory in 1904. And the entire basis of this laboratory was to study eugenics and figure out how we can take these theories and apply them actively on humanity to, in his mind, improve the human race. So he mainly used math to do this. Math? Math. Okay. Uh, he, he understood biology, but he was probably better at, at math and statistics. And so he used a lot of mathematical formulas to try to predict 
patterns of inheritance, again, for everything from, I mean, very basic stuff like eye collar to things like alcoholism, uh, pellagra, which of course we know is not a genetic disease. It means B1 deficiency, vitamin Mm -hmm. B1 deficiency. We've done an episode about it before. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, to bad tempers. So he was using science, but in but in sort of measuring the wrong stuff, basically. Applying this concept to things that are much more complex. He was simplifying something that is that is infinitely more complicated. Okay. Um, and uh, and as part of that study, he also focused a lot on the expression of various traits as it was brought about by interracial marriages. Hmm. His inherent theory being that more variability was seen in interracial marriages and, and their offspring, and that somehow this was bad, okay. which was not... Uh, That's not genetics, right? No, That's... in any way, but that because he saw more variability that this was... Anyway, th- there was a lot of focus on this as well. So this, uh, my point here is that this research is already fundamentally biased Yeah, from the beginning. Uh, He founded the International Federation of Eugenics Organizations in 1925, worked with uh, Eugen Fischer, who was a German professor of medicine and a Nazi, by the way, Ah. and uh, became chairman of the Commission on Bastardization and Miscegenation. What's miscegenation mean? That means interracial marriage. Ah, okay. So... His idea. This, this science seems to have taken kind of a nasty turn. Yeah, well, it does. I mean, we know it does, right? Uh, so his. Oh, I- okay. I see where you're going with this, Paul Harvey. I figured out the rest <laughs> of this particular story, but please go on. Are you just now? You're just now coming to me, yes. <laughs> so his ideas, as I said, they were already based a lot on racial bias and social bias too. I say racial bias, but you you've got to understand. He was probably biased against anybody who didn't look like him. Right. Yes. Right. White, you know, northern or western European descent. And this is the thing that's frustrating about this. I mean, obviously lots, but the, the from a historical perspective, like science doesn't mix with bias. Like science doesn't mesh with bias. Anytime mm-hmm. si- if you see bias introduced like this, it's never, it's not science anymore, right? No, it poisons the science. Poisons the science. It does. Because um, science doesn't care what you like and don't like. Science doesn't care what you want the answer to be. It just is that. Mm-hmm. And if you come at it um, with a with a goal already in mind to prove a point that you've already decided is true, you could try to bend and twist facts until they seem to support your your hypothesis, but you you haven't really that's not science right so anyway he began you know based on these these biases that he had he uh he began to develop these like i said these these concepts of inheritance that had nothing to do with actual genes as we understand them today and to give you kind of an example he was really building on you remember gregor mendel and the pea plants oh yeah that monk yes now that that was actually done He's in the eighteen hundreds. Make the peas do it. <laughs> it's nasty, Gregor Mendel. Peas you don't. Do, you do you, Gregor. Peas do don't you. do it, honey. Uh huh. I got you. It's all right. Gregor's not here. You don't have to. Okay. Sugarcoat it. Anyway, that research was actually done in like the mid eighteen hundreds, but it wasn't till like the early nineteen hundreds that it was kind of rediscovered and 
built upon and it made a lot of geneticists really excited like people said eugenics like look Not at this Mendel stuff this pea plant stuff course. is great so uh you know he really wanted to build on this stuff uh davenport really wanted to take Mendel's pea plants and expand it to everything so you probably remember from high school science punnett squares yeah capital b lowercase b and you figure out your eye color or exactly whatever. exactly those little squares that help you figure out heterozygous and homozygous traits and all that kind of stuff and how why your blood group is something or why your eye color is something well he made these sort of uh, like frankenstein punnett square type diagrams based on those ideas for all kinds of traits like i said so so he has these weird things where he's like here's some somatic traits of the father and here's some from the mother and you've got things from like curly hair versus straight hair and then he puts them together to see like how they cross and what ends up coming out of that but like it also included things like short or tall uh extra toe or no extra toe (laughs) um not musical or actually, in both of these cases, both these parents were not musical. And so you can go into the next generation and find that there is a, a musical inhibitor that ah, has been inherited. Course. Right. Because the parents were not musical. So anyway, as my, my point with this is that this isn't science. This is all just, you're just making this up. You can't observe that. Right. You can't trace musical directly through a family and decide you know i mean that's that my point is that there's no science there okay okay does that make sense yes absolutely okay uh so can't you kind of i mean some of that stuff right like parents who are good at music and then their kids are good at music but i guess there's a lot more what you're saying is there's a lot more factors there's music in the home for example so the kids get more exposure to it you got it so then that that's one of the big things he missed here is that first of all these are a lot more complicated traits than one gene. There is not a gene for musical ability. Right. There's not a magic musical gene that you either have or you don't have. It's much more complex than that. Again, because he made these models for everything from basic stuff like eye color to feeble-mindedness. Whatever that means. Which was a diagnosis that could mean many things depending on who you wanted to persecute at various times in history. Uh, Psychosis, pauperism. So if you were poor, that was thought to be inherited. Stature, syphilis. Yeah. And uh, thala- thalassophilia. Do you know what that means? No. A love of the sea. Okay. He found that commonly in naval All officers. Right, in addition, he completely eliminated external factors and socialization. So exactly what you just brought up, Justin. He took the nature versus nurture debate and said, screw nurture. It doesn't exist. Everything comes down to a bunch of inherited genetic factors period. It doesn't matter who raises you or what the environment is or how many pianos you have in your house. You're either musical or you got the musical inhibitor and that's it. Um, He also contradicted himself a lot. He would say things like criminality is really hard to define because what's illegal in one country might not be illegal in another country. But then on the flip side, at the end of his essay, in this exact same essay, he said, but here's some heritable criminal activity that I'm still going to prove you can can predict who's going to be a criminal and who's not and then we don't let them get married. Um, also, his statistics were, were bad. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into all the whys because that can be kind of boring. <laughs> a little boring. But his statistics were Take bad. Take it for granted. Anyway, he was widely criticized, even by others in the eugenics movement. A lot of the UK eugenicists were like, dude, you are ruining this for us. 
we are trying to build something here and you're making us look like idiots. Please stop what you're doing. This is Davenport. This is Davenport. Uh, But he didn't care. He wrote a ton of essays. His wife, who was a zoology professor, helped him with all of this. And together, the two of them wrote these essays on hair and eye and skin color. It paved the way for these theories to be taught in schools. So they started to be taught in schools all over the U.S. Um, He wrote a book, Heredity in Relation to Eugenics, which was taught on college campuses all over the U.S. And a lot of famous people got on board and worked at or through or as part of his laboratory, including Margaret Sanger and Teddy Roosevelt and Alexander Graham Bell and John Kellogg. That last one does not surprise me. That actually didn't surprise me either. That last one makes perfect sense. And, and And let me say, all these people had different degrees of you know inclusion in this i'm not saying that they were all on the same level and that they all agreed with what you should do with this information but they all at least believed in some part in eugenics and in what we were learning from these pseudoscience theories Hmm. uh he also worked with the american breeders association okay which a group that later would become the American Genetic Association and just completely run away from its roots as fast <laughs> as possible who? and Damn have who? nothing to do with that now. Breeder? No, not us. Um, well, you've been talking about findings. Like, Do you want to talk a little bit more about the specific sort of findings from, from eugenics at this point? Yes, but first, Justin, let's go to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got at two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious, and you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat, there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette 
that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So Sid, you were gonna, um, we're gonna talk about some of the specific findings and suggestions of, of eugenics. So, so through this uh, eugenics records office, um, the there were many kind of recommendations and, and programs and stuff that arose from it. The first, as I mentioned, was this concept of positive eugenics. So, how can we try to convince people that we think should do it and have babies to do it and have babies Mm -hmm. so throughout the 1920s you see this thing called fitter family contests uh they were sort of based on there were these better baby contests that had started prior to world war one which actually had a lot of there was actually a good reason they did this they did these better baby contests where you would compare your babies but also they would teach you a lot about taking care of babies Mm. so it was like a public health effort well they where you choose the best (laughs) baby well but you also learned about like hygiene and nutrition and And breastfeeding the best of a bunch of newborns yes one okay but just there was more to it now the fitter family contests are a whole other thing but since they seem to fit that same model a lot of people went to them uh, they were held at state fairs, and basically it was a way to try to reward people who had the best genetic traits and then make them aware of this idea of genetic traits and good and bad. So basically you would bring your white, Midwestern, Northern European heritage family to the fair to be judged alongside the livestock that was already being judged for its genetic superiority. Excellent. Uh, you had to bring like records of your family's health issues. You had to register ahead of time so that you could develop, answer all these questionnaires about everybody in your family and their jobs and, you know, what kind of illnesses they had and how successful they were and all that kind of stuff, um, what your position in society was. And then you would undergo like a complete physical exam and psychological testing and interviews and, I mean, a really in-depth profile on every member of your family, lab testing, blood tests, urine tests, the whole deal. And at the end, every you and all of your family would get scored, and they would average out your score, and whoever has the highest average would win a trophy. Okay. And then, like a trophy, depending on how big your family was. Like if you had a if you had a really good genes and you had a lot of kids, you got a big trophy. Okay. If you just had a few kids, you still got a trophy, but it was smaller. Okay. And then everybody who came close would get these bronze medals that say, "Yay, I have a goodly heritage." Okay. And then while you were going through this three hour long process, they would also educate you on genetics. So you would watch these movies about marrying people with good traits and good genes and good bloodlines and the dangers of allowing unfit so-called people to breed. And they had this whole demonstration they did with light bulbs where one mm. light bulb goes off and then all these other goes off around it. And they tried to use it to talk about humans and sex and children. And okay. so it was also kind of brainwashing. Um, so that was being done on one end of the spectrum. As I mentioned, there was also negative eugenics. And this is where everything gets much darker. This is a lot 
more upsetting, I think, than a family fair where you judge kids like cows. You judge the best white people. <laughs> um, many of these ideas, when put into practice, led to sterilization laws because in the U.S., we weren't necessarily advocating for killing people who we didn't want to breed. So that's good. But we also didn't want them to have kids. And now we had doctors who could do things like tubal ligations or vasectomies. What were they targeting? So it varied state by state because every state had their own. Not every state had this law, but the majority of states did have some kind of law in place. But generally, people with disabilities were often targeted physical disabilities, any kind of mental illness. Epilepsy was specifically targeted very often. Um, and then unmarried women, people who were poor, people in prison were definitely targeted. Um, and then eventually specific racial and ethnic groups. Immigrants were targeted very often, poor immigrants or not poor immigrants. It didn't matter. Um, obviously, African-Americans were targeted uh, there was this kind of hierarchy of immigrants where people, again, from like Northern or Western Europe were usually allowed to let slide. But from Asian countries or from Latin America, uh, they were definitely targeted. Um, and again, from state to state, it, it would just depend on if somebody could declare you any of these things that meant unfit. Right. And a doctor was willing to do the procedure. That was enough. Um, these same ideas also led to Virginia's Racial Integrity Act of 1924, which is what initially prevented interracial marriage. Uh, the Immigration Restriction League, which had formed in the late 1800s, also used these concepts to further its argument that we shouldn't let certain immigrants in because they were, you know, degrading our, our genetic pool. And uh, that led to, in part, not the only factor, but these ideas led in part to the Immigration Act of 1924 that selectively, like, it created a hierarchy. Right. Keep out immigrants from certain parts of the world and let in immigrants from others. Um, so American. Yeah. Yeah, I know. This Does this sound familiar? Yeah, right? Yeah. The the widespread sterilization laws that, that resulted from this ended up with 65,000 forced sterilizations in the United States of America. Jesus. Uh, the majority of these happened in California. Really? Kind of sh about 20,000. So not the majority of that number, but they uh, by far had the highest proportion in one state. You, I mean, I know it was a long time ago, like, so this stuff can change, but you typically think of that as such a progressive state. Uh, one, their laws were just very stringent, and they were very, they were able to enact them very quickly. Um, they were largely on institutionalized people, hmm. and they just, uh, they weren't challenged and so they, they were able, they had very efficient programs for it. And then a lot of it had to do with um, race and, and social status. They had a lot of uh, Asian American immigrants. They had a lot of uh, people of Hispanic descent. And they were targeted disproportionately at that time. And so and so it resulted in, in, a, in a lot of people being sterilized in California. Uh, the practice was challenged at the Supreme Court level in 1927 in a course called... Uh, in a case called Buck versus Bell, and the court found that it was fine. They supported it was a Buck Carrie Buck was a young woman in an institution. The director of the institution wanted to challenge this specifically so that he could make sure he was able to sterilize as many people as possible. So he took this kind of landmark case all the way to the Supreme Court, and they let him sterilize forcibly this 18-year-old girl that he accused of multiple different things that probably weren't true and 
Um, and, they, and they basically said, if it's in the greater interest of the state, I think the exact words of Holmes were three generations of imbeciles is enough. I This is like staggering to me. Like, I guess it shouldn't be. I feel very naive because of how sort of surprising I find all this. But And th- these this was never really overturned. By the way, Buckley Bell, it's still referenced in case law. It it made things more complicated, like they made more complicated cases out of it in the 40s. There were some some cases that kind of made it not so easy to do, but the concept did not stop. Uh, the laws generally fell out of favor in the 60s. Um, a lot changed, as I'm going to go into in World War II, as you can imagine. But the uh, but the practice persisted, especially among the poor, especially among minority groups and marginalized populations. Uh, young black women in the South were victims of this practice, often being performed on them without their knowledge, uh, especially by doctors in training, I'm ashamed to say. Residents learning procedures were allowed to do these on women who, you know, were anesthetized and didn't know what was being done to them. Uh, or, or they were given consent forms that they couldn't read mm. and they did it and they were lied to. And so they signed them. So it was done, you know, with consent, but not with consent. Um, and this was done similarly to native American women in the seventies, huge numbers. Um, some people estimate up to 25% of native American women were sterilized under the guise of receiving appendectomies. And I'm saying a lot of women, a lot of the, um, the history of this focuses on women. This was done to men too. Institutionalized men, men who were in jail, men who had all of these same things that I just mentioned, physical and mental disabilities. I should clarify, men also were victims of this, of forced vasectomies and, you know, castration or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, and there's still cases of coerced sterilization procedures in prisoners up into the 2000s where it's not necessarily forced, but there's definitely coercion occurring. So the overt eugenics movement that allowed all this, as I mentioned, lost traction in the U.S. largely in the wake of World War II, because this all sounds well and good. And I think the only thing that to to a lot of Americans, a lot of white Americans, it wasn't harming them. They didn't mind going to fairs and showing off their yeah, right. Their livestock. Their milk-fed muscles. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but then when it, they were faced with the reality of where true eugenics will take you, which is to mass killings and genocide, then finally Americans said... It doesn't seem said, quite, as, well, quite as appealing. You know what? We don't really like this. Um, but to be fair, the U.S. eugenics movement and the subsequent sterilizations that followed were so widespread that they were cited by Adolf Hitler as part of his inspiration he wrote there is today one state in which at least weak beginnings toward a better conception of citizenship are noticeable of course it is not our model german republic but the united states he was largely referencing california at the time and the buck versus bell case was cited by the defense at nuremberg so this history contributed to the history of the eugenics movement, the white supremacy movement, and I think you have to say to the racial purity movement and Nazism across the Atlantic. And it's just wrong. It's but just yeah. made up. It's all made up. It's all made up. It's all made up. And uh, and I think a couple of things to remember about this is, first of all, it is still happening today in different forms, especially this, the, the f- coerced sterilization that I was talking about. Uh, they do things like 
payoffs or plea bargains with um, criminals. Like, listen, we'll let you off. We'll do this if you also agree to have a tubal ligation performed or have a vasectomy or something like that. Um, in addition, just coercion, just kind of forcing people to by doctors. And this is not just legal personnel. These are, you know, and, and law enforcement personnel. These are doctors telling people, like, you really need to do this. Um, and the rhetoric that was used to fuel this movement involved demonizing immigrants, people who didn't speak English, people who didn't share necessarily what your personal cultural values are, whatever they are. Uh, all that rhetoric is something that we should not be, we, we should not be shocked to hear happened then because it's happening now. It's the same thing that you're hearing now. And... Uh, they and they used mul they used manipulated scientific fact to try and support it. And they took advantage of the fact that this was a new science, genetics. I mean, by this, genetics was a new science. It was really hard to understand. It was difficult for the scientists, let alone a layperson, to understand. And so, if that's the case, it's really easy for someone to come along, manipulate it to make it sound simple. Well, you just inherit your criminality. You just inherit whether you're poor or rich. If you're a bad person, it's just your genes. So we just got to get rid of the bad people and keep the good people and then we'll be okay. Mm -hmm. And when you put it like that, it sounds so easy. It sounds fixable. It sounds like something we can do, but it's lies. It's all lies, but they're easy lies to tell. And if you're not paying attention and you don't take the time to follow up and listen to the more complicated truth, then you can get snowed really easily. And then the other reason that this persisted is because as I mentioned, Davenport was widely criticized. I mean, in his time, just as he is now, for his theories. People said at the time, this is wrong. What he's talking about is ridiculous. You can't predict criminal behavior based on a gene. It has to do with so many different things. It has nothing to do with skin color. It has nothing to do with if you're Jewish. It has nothing to do with, you know, what country you came from. It's so much bigger than that. But all this criticism was in the form of strongly worded letters to him personally or journal articles published in scientific journals that lay people weren't reading nobody was calling the media nobody was calling the government nobody was standing on the street corner with a megaphone until it was too late and i, I think that's the other take-home point is that this that rhetoric and that kind of twisted thinking and pseudoscience has to be called out publicly because it doesn't do any good to silently disagree um, until after the fact. Folks, that's going to do it this week for us on Sawbones. Uh, sorry that I stepped out for the last 15 minutes. Uh, I was trying to look for a joke to say, and I couldn't find any. So I'm sorry. I've been balancing my check. No, that was just really. Um, get smart. Start talking. Start reading. Start talking to people you disagree with. Um, it's okay to get a little angry sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't mean violent. I just or mean a angry. Ang or a lot angry. Yeah, maybe a lot angry. feels right, too. <laughs> um, thank you to the Maximum Fun Network for letting us be a part of their podcasting family. There's a lot of great shows there. Uh, thanks to the taxpayers for letting us use their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And that is going to do it for us this week, folks. Um, be sure to join us again next week when Sydney promises me that the show will be about tickling. Yeah, we're going to talk about tickling next week. My name is Justin McElroy. <laughs> I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.